What is the single most important element that makes a SEAL team so dangerous? What is the single most vital component of a Ranger platoon or a Delta Force operator or anyone who engages in warfare in our era? What is, what is the single most important element about them? And you might say things like training or infrastructure or logistics. But I'll argue that you're wrong. In fact, other people have harnessed this, this thing before. Uh, we've seen the Taliban effectively wielded against the United States. And it happens to be one of the things that makes civil war so dangerous, as well as it is one of those elements that the infamous they don't want you to possess. So carry on with me. Bear witness. Bear witness! As we go down this trial, this trail to conclude what it is that makes these people so dangerous and how you can harness it too if you are willing, if you're willing to put in the work, that is. But before we get there, and this is going to be a long road, but we've talked about some of these subjects before. In fact, if you were able to jump in on the latest edition of our Moon's Haunted Shirts, the clue is on the front. It is the separation between Juice Ad Bellum and Juice in Bello, which is a classic just war theory division between a justified action or a justified cause to go to war being separate from what are justified actions in war. And why I am talking about this today, in fact, in my own studies, I've been given a bit of a boon by a culturally relevant item. Just yesterday, the trailer for this movie by A24 Productions, whatever. I'm not the film nerd, so don't go at me on that one. But A24 drops this trailer for a film called Civil War that takes place in an America that is engaging in what we'd call the Second Civil War, and it looks pretty gnarly. And of course, the main characters are journalists, which despite the cultural connotations and perhaps virtue signaling that might come in this angle, what we might have to recognize a little bit is that there is a virtuous ideal for the journalist, even if those who we observe filling the role very rarely, if ever, fit the, the, the bill or are above board. Same thing goes for politicians, but we carry on. It'd be really nice to have some statesmen back in this world. But there's a, there's a classic division between justified cause for war being separate from just action in war. And for you and I as individuals, we might see this played out in, or even taken as assumed in movies and film and culture and in the way that we operate as a society. And that is the item, though, which is breaking down. What is breaking down is the division between those two, and it's happening from two fronts. But let's start with what that, I, that, that, that assumption typically looks like. We take for granted very often or generally assume that the morality of a war is separate from the moral morality of the actions of those who take place in the war. For example, no individual soldier is held responsible corporately for an unjust war. 
And the morality of a war is not particularly determined moral or immoral, moral or immoral by the actions of those who partake in it. Idea, this, is, this may be talking about it from its extremes, but it is a subject that has not only long perplexed individuals, but been taken advantage of, particularly in the use or the abuse of the goodwill of citizens to fight on behalf of their country, only to later find out that they indeed are the baddies. Or at least that's how a good movie would trick the audience into rooting for the bad guys for a while and then lead them on a journey where the hero becomes some sort of a, you know, counter empire freedom fighter. It's not exactly an original story, but maybe somebody with a good mark for pensmanship or writing would write the story of the inverse where, in fact, the empire turns out to be the good guys. But I mean, when you see these films are oftentimes depicted very, very stereotypically. The most classic example in recent film would be, uh, what's that movie called? Creator, The Creator. It has this sort of weird stormtrooper-esque genocidal military special operations guys fighting against otherwise peaceful, multiculturally blended, mixed Asian-ish like a, a supportive peoples and it just doesn't it just kind of breaks down in the story when you pull it out and you realize that the bad guys are caricatures of caricatures themselves but in a, in a bit more of an academic approach and where i'm coming from at this time is i'm reading killing and war by jeff mcmahon and i've listened to some of his lectures and he does an interesting job talking about the the way that these assumptions are typically held and the one that we're talking about we're again centering on here is the issue where we keep a separation between a just cause for war, that a country may be justified in going to war, uh, and we separate that from the just actions of the more or the moral actions of those who are engaging in war, the soldiers particularly. And this example comes out very clearly in how soldiers, when fighting other soldiers, are somehow exempt from the moral responsibility of killing another person or it's simply just reduced to some form of self-defense. However, depending on the circumstances of the war, that doesn't always hold up. I mean, a man in a drone, a man flying in a, in a drone or flying a drone is very, very far-fetched to claim a self-defense action when he's using a Hellfire missile against a man in a toyota hilux which is still unironically every veteran's favorite truck and we're okay with that for a little while longer but i mean that's a trope that we can push on a little bit later so there's the the, the difficulty of the problem is that the difficulty of the situation here that and that what we're addressing specifically within the concept of just war theory is that According to just war theory and why this is relevant to us as, an, as individuals, according to how it is oftentimes thought or even assumed in just war theory, is that the actions of the individuals who partic participate in war are the actions in which they are morally judged. But that frame, the framework by which they are judged changes because they're in war. 
And then there's a wartime expectation and a peacetime expectation. And then we have things like the distinction between combatants and non-combatants and that combatants engage in some form of mutual combat only when it's war. And they are permitted to do so because they're engaging in warfare on behalf of their country and it gets muddy. Now, there are certain cases we could start with maybe oversimplifications or just simplified versions of that scenario to see where that is justified. But it's also just as easy to come up with cases where it's not. And so it, in, a, in a question that we I had asked in yesterday's episode 166 on reengaging in why men go to war, I posed a question. What ha is it moral for a man to go to war? if he knows that the cause of the war is unjust? And we might say the answer is no. And so what we have a problem here is with the, one of the, the, let's call it the top-down problem of the, of the way of the assumptions made in just war theory is that a person could choose to willingly participate in a war that they know is unjust are they then morally exempt from the actions that would otherwise not be considered moral if they were not in a war? Or put a, put maybe better phrased is, is it considered immoral for a man to become a soldier in an unjust war so that he may go and engage in warfare or go, or go engage in mutual combat without the same moral conditions? That is, uh, we would not expect it to be the case. We would, we would kind of, we would, we, it, it doesn't really follow that a person could become exempt from morality simply by participating in something that they know is an unjust war. So they might perform morally according to juice im bello. They might act according to the rules of engagement but their intention of joining the military during a war that they determined to be unjust was doing so knowing that they could be they would be put in a position where they would be engaging in warfare and so that is the first avenue of approach where this starts to break down the second one is what what is going to lead us to the civil war problem and that is when we look at the ways that warfare is fought and the expanding use of different avenues of approach, which is, I mean, fancy military way of speaking of the, 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 the way to bring in con conflict or to create an attack, an attack vector. Again, we're using jargon to explain jargon and it's not very beneficial. It Think of an avenue of approach as a weakness a weakness in a wall or a different way of delivering violence. So an attack vector might be something like, well, their army is all facing to the west, and so we can flank around. Or another attack, another form of an attack vector is that they're dependent on the sea, or they, they have a heavy defense of the sea, but we can use air. Um, or another one that has, a, it's a little bit more even, a little bit even more ambiguous is that we know that our enemy cannot function at night, and so we will use night vision to use uh, a surreptitious entry to attack a, a known important location. Attack vectors can be very, very physical, like routes and planning on a map, and they can become a little bit more abstract, like technology, economics, and in this case, culture. And so 
where where I'm bringing this in about where I'm bringing this in with the second part of culture and the second part of the challenge with just war theory comes from the bottom up. Uh, and we're going to, we're going to return back, but we'll, we'll make it so. And that is do the way warfare is, is the way that warfare is fought in the 21st century in any way conducive or similar to or even reflective of the rules that we claim in just war theory. And there are two examples of it. One of them is proxy war. So if a country employs another country or a, a country employs non-state actors in another area to sabotage an opponent or attack, literally attack an opponent, is that considered what 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 rules does that fall under? Does that fall under juice ad bellum or juice in bello? Is it is that a are their actions justified if there is no overtly declared war between two countries, or is it and or or even are the is the action of the hiring government and their agents justified in employing somebody else to engage in warfare? on their behalf without declaring war. And that's where we get even, that's where we get into the Cold War and we get some of the issues that have sprung from that. And in our recent time, and what we're looking at today in light of this situation, this, 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 this uh, trailer coming out, the renewed fervor and questions about civil war, and where we get in our worldviews and how, our, how we understand these things is, the answer to that original question. What is it that makes Navy SEALs so dangerous or Army Rangers or really the military in general? I mean, you could use drones in this example. And the answer to this is sanction. Now, some of you have heard me said this before, those of you who know me personally, and it's become the focus of what we look at in just war theory. And sanction could be thought of as permission, or it's accepted that they're going to do this. You take a man, you can teach him how to shoot, you can teach him how to jump out of planes, you can equip him with the best equipment in the world, you can give him the best training in the world, you can give him the best infrastructure in the world for war, war fighting, but if he is not permitted to engage in that war, then he is not as dangerous as somebody who has none of those things but is given a blank check in, in going to war with his enemies. He's he, a man who is not willing and, and or a, a man who is not permitted to engage in violence will be hampered or less capable than somebody who is less equipped but more willing and more has more of a, the cultural sanction to participate in this. And so where, how does that answer the problem with what we've talked about in the bottom up and the top down? Or how does this address the top down and the bottom up issues with just war theory? Well, from the top down, and, what we, and this is what I'm referring to as the top down, is that we have this assumed separation between juice ad bellum and juice in bello, where the powers that be are expected to be just are, are expected to only declare war in a uh, for just causes, and the people who are 
their instruments, the soldiers, the military in that sense, are expected to remain within the rules of engagement, and those two things do not touch. The justifications for war do not touch the just actions of those in war. And why this starts to break down is that, or where this starts to break down is when we talk about the ideas of and the intellect of the individual and the individual's responsibility and democratization and the way that what liberalism is moving in the world, whether it's rights and responsibilities, obligations and so forth, whether it's the idea that man is created in the image of God and therefore is an individual and is bear and bears individual morality for his own actions and what he knows and doesn't know and what he deliberately chooses not to know in order to get away with doing something that he might have a hankering that isn't being isn't right. Uh, for example, if a man were to blind himself let's just say metaphorically from the consequences of his actions, is he then morally responsible for them at all? And we would not, we would very rarely, if ever, say no. He is responsible for the actions, even if he blinds himself or he breaks that mechanism within his mind, which connects cause to effect which would be if he drives himself mad intentionally, does he get to claim madness as exemption for immorality? We would say no. And at some time, uh, you know, a four-year-old wielding, or a, a madman wielding a lightsaber, it will d does the damage regardless of whether he's intentional or not, and that's another moral problem. But from the top-down issue with this just war theory problem, what we recognize is that since an individual has agency he is then individually responsible for both juice ad bellum and juice in bello within his own life he cannot claim nuremberg trials as, as, as the key example that he was just following orders when a man is on the battlefield even if he's employed by his country to go fight on their behalf he cannot claim that i was just following orders at least not before a moral standard maybe before a human standard but not before an objective moral standard and so if we want to have our cake so to speak if we want to have our, our, our individual agency, our, call it liberty, our, our, our freedom in this sense, we are inherently tied to the obligations of said freedom. Which is a side note, why you see ideologies that promote slavery in the form of communism, because they get to abdicate the will of the mind to the greater consciousness, thus somehow ab getting the person exempt from the responsibilities of any of their own actions, making everything collective, and then you have a big problem. But that's, that's an, a religious argument for another time. Uh, footnote being, uh, communism is a religion, and its God is government, and its method of delivery is death. But I mean, I it's it, punching it, punching down at communism is not really a hard thing to do anymore. It's kind of shown its true colors. But now from the bottom up, and this is where it gets tricky, and this is where I I made this statement earlier that they, the infamous they, or maybe the powers that be, or whatever you want to say, those are the people who don't want you to understand it. Maybe it's not even that they don't. It's not even. Maybe it's not even the case that they don't consciously desire you not to know it. But in a form of jealousy or mankind's wickedness, we withhold certain things from each other. 
And that is the cultural problem. And that is why civil war itself is so dangerous. Now, at least in the trailer of this movie, Civil War, um, by A24, we see an interesting depi a, a, a depiction of what a civil war might look like that sharply breaks from the, a, the Clausewitzian, Napoleonic sense. There's not armies fighting against each other. There certainly are kind of like nation states or whatever that are, that are at odds with each other that broke apart from what would have been the United States. But it's not so clear that there's armies, and it's not so clear that there are what what they start to depict in the film are these like no man's lands areas and where there's there's a lot of ambiguity and you might get something we might get something like um what was that movie what was that tv series that came out that it was it was a metaphorical or uh, or is a fictional world where like the germans won world war ii i uh, i can't remember the name of it but what you see in that movie is something that's much where the day what you see in that trailer sorry a man in the high castle that was the tv show um but it, what you see in the a24 trailer for civil war is a world where there's danger and it's not always obvious where it's coming from most caricaturistically depicted by the man in the red sunglasses who uh when told they were that when the people told him they were americans he says yeah but what kind of americans and then you see this ambiguity and the and the danger comes in it's delivered in that scene and it's delivered in the concern that culture and how culture presents and considers civil war for example let's just say that there was a date a certain date where we could state that civil war ii started let's it's a metaphor but we're using it as an example it does the morality of the individual change after that day yes or no if your answer is yes then you're claiming that there's special sanctions for individuals in a civil war like state but what we've seen over the last mm, hundred years or so and well beyond is that war the the declared season of war is very short but the tail ends stretch long both ways leading to the deaths of millions oftentimes done in quiet or where a blind eye is turned um and so the issue the challenge the danger in a civil war especially a modern civil war is an open sanction of violence against the other now we've seen reflections of this take place recently in modern America, particularly with the Summer of Love. In the city of Minneapolis, you'd see people put signs on their buildings, hoping that the mob that would not burn it down. And at least a section of the government or a, a what would have been determined a majority of the population, but that's probably, you know, that's, that's up for debate in anyone else's realm sanctioned that vi that violence so long as they either a didn't have to see it or b didn't have to deal with it uh they didn't have to pay the consequences for it and the there was this there's this acceptability that we see in literature it's uh violence is the language of the unheard it is uh the idea of indefensive looting it is the literature of ibram x kendi it is the literature of uh antifa it is the literature of Malcolm Nance, it is the literature of even uh, Barbara F. Walter. 
And what you see is this problem and that, that might be in the form of preemptive self-defense, but there's some issues with it too. And I'm particularly addressing left-wing literature in that science. A right-wing form of literature is that is that somewhat mm, that 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 right-wing view of literature that views a potential civil war, let's call it the boogaloo, which isn't really a right-wing thing, but we don't need to go down that road. Uh, as a thing that's going to have a start date and an end date. It's going to have once the Civil War starts, then things are going to change or that things can only be solved by a Civil War or something like that. Now, ironically enough, it's not particularly a right-wing thing, but growing up in and around the firearms community, uh, since we already know that the firearms community tends to be right-wing politically, you would see overexposure from that uh, or, or greater exposure to that. And so... The thing, and this is where you can harness this issue, though, the thing that makes civil war so dangerous is that it creates this idea, or it is sort of the predicated on, it's built on, it produces a pervasive environment where the sanction of violence is distributed to all of the people in a country that it is that at any given moment whatever it is that sanction of violence is it's not like it's not not like a sanction against another government the sanction is placed on the population to engage in violence on behalf of whatever they see the future to be and and that is that is the danger that the thing the barrier which protects people from one another's violence in that sense, that, 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 that prohibition of violence, of a moral standing, is lifted. In other words, the great danger of civil war is that, it, the, that violence, brother against brother, is permitted without regard for the consequences. And what we typically see in these kind of scenarios, i.e. Bosnia and Serbia and uh, the civil wars that have raged across the world, is that very quickly, juice ad bellum, the justification for war, is extended so far that it eradicates any semblance of the just actions in war for the warfighters. But in closing, there's something that's important to be gained from this, too. And it's something that you can gain, something that you can learn, something that you can grow in and harness. And that is to understand what sanctions you have, particularly in the use of force, part, even more specifically, use of force for self-defense. And so if you are looking at people who are trying to tell you that you are not permitted to use force, you are dealing with somebody who wants to remove from you that most important tool, which is your agency, your ability, your more ability to navigate a, a complicated moral situation, make decisions and act. And that is why we say, as we close, go forth and conquer.